Welcome back to Reformed, a podcast on the criminal justice system and criminal justice reform. Today, we'll continue to explore the causes that led to mass incarceration and the prison state. episode, we'll trace the roots of imprisonment, exploring how everything from illegal drugs, fear-mongering within communities, and even post-World War II housing policy helped create today's justice system. As America enthusiastically waged the war on drugs, the government also began to adopt a number of tough-on-crime policies. Tough-on-crime policies are exactly what they sound like. During the 1980s and 90s, lawmakers worked to usher in an era of harsh criminal punishment unlike any other era in American criminal policy. In those years, legislators focused their sentencing reform on punitive policies. Congress approved large numbers of mandatory sentences and harsh sentencing guidelines. These new sentencing guidelines targeted repeat offenders, violent offenders, those whose crimes involved gun possession, and drug traffickers. But when they were rolled out, the prison population skyrocketed. Many scholars cite tough-on-crime policies as the driving force behind America's astronomically high incarceration rates that we discussed in the last episode. In the years that these policies were introduced and enforced, America saw the development of mass incarceration as a system, as well as economic and political forces that gave positive reinforcement to these harsh sentencing practices. We'll discuss some of those forces even more in following episodes. So, you might ask yourself, why did legislators support these tough-on-crime policies? It turns out they were under immense political pressure. As we discussed in the last episode, the Nixon administration began the federal government's war on drugs as a means of political control, laying the groundwork for the carceral state. The early stages of the war on drugs expanded the size and power of federal drug control agencies, and the executive branch under Nixon promoted the early use of mandatory sentencing and harsh policing tactics. The Nixon administration's drug crackdown still has serious effects on American drug policy today. For instance, the Nixon administration took a hardline approach to marijuana, in direct opposition to the advice of many contemporary activists and policymakers. In what was supposed to be a temporary move, the president placed marijuana in a category of drugs known as Schedule I. Schedule 1 is a term used by the Drug Enforcement Administration, or DEA. According to the DEA, these schedules describe the drug's, quote, acceptable medical use and the drug's abuse or dependency potential. Schedule 1 drugs have, quote, a high potential for abuse and the potential to create severe psychological and or physical dependence. The way the DEA categorizes drugs matters because Schedule I drug offenses are severely penalized within the criminal justice system. Moreover, scientific research on the efficacy of Schedule I drugs to treat medical conditions is extremely restricted under current law. 
A commission that Nixon himself appointed unanimously recommended decriminalizing marijuana possession and decriminalizing marijuana distribution for personal use. Nixon ignored this advice, and marijuana is still a Schedule I drug today. The Schedule I classification means that the U.S. government views marijuana as more dangerous and addictive than drugs like cocaine, oxycodone, and fentanyl, and as dangerous as heroin. You might recognize the Schedule II drugs, oxycodone and fentanyl, as the same drugs that are currently driving America's opioid epidemic. These drugs are frequently prescribed by doctors and researched by manufacturers. They don't have the same history as cocaine, heroin, or marijuana in the war on drugs, are commonly abused by white people, and aren't prosecuted with the extreme severity that other drug abuses are. Some critics have argued that the huge difference in prosecution of these drug offenses reflects unspoken bias against people of color and low-income Americans. Just like the discrepancy in crack sentencing that we discussed in our first episode, this difference in sentencing and scheduling doesn't seem to be based in any factual scientific grounds. Instead, the differences might represent the biases of lawmakers. Here's what Saquon R. Merritt, a justice reform advocate, entrepreneur, and formerly incarcerated individual, told me about the effects of the opioid epidemic in his neighborhood. Yeah, 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 I see. I see huge changes with the, um, structurally, I see changes. Um, but I also see changes with that, the opioid epidemic. Mm -hmm. That opioid epidemic took a lot of, uh, a lot of my friends. Some some of my friends down, you know, took some of my friends down as, you know, uh, users and dealers, uh, you know, and I mean down as dealers, obviously, you know, they, you know, suffered, you know, death, incarceration, uh, and for the abusers, the same thing, death, users, death, and incarceration, and, um, you know, that, that, that really changed. That area, just you know, you see people, you know, walking around like zombies, um, and it's it's crazy because you know it 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 all started um, where we at, where we at now, where we at now was through these uh, over prescriptions of of opioids for you know these simple, well I'm not gonna say simple, but um, pain saking you know car accidents or, you know, any, any type of, uh, you know, accidents that you suffer and you're in, you know, you're in excruciating pain, you know, they prescribe you these opioids. Um, you know, unfortunately when I was on the, that other side, um, and I was, you know, dealing, I've met people, you know, I was, I was dealing with people that have never, ever used opioid in their life, never used heroin in their life. And, you know, they, was explained to me like, man, I, I, I'm strung out because my doctor prescribed me these pain medicine, these pills for a car accident. I was out of work and now the prescription stopped and I have a habit and I found that it'd be cheaper for me just to buy heroin, you know, and that's one story that's uh, reflective of millions of Americans now, you know in rural areas and what we've been going through in the urban community forever. But now more so, you know, why the spotlight is on it because it's hitting all these rural areas. But, um, yeah, that, that, that has really, um, that has really, that's really changed my neighborhood, changed my neighborhood, changed a lot of people. A lot of people, uh, passed away. 
Getting back to those lawmakers, you might think it's strange that they were able to enact such harsh drug laws. Although initial drug control acts began in 1970 and Nixon declared the war on drugs in 1971, throughout the 70s, it looked like drug laws might actually be reduced, not expanded. Jimmy Carter incorporated marijuana decriminalization into his campaign. The drug was increasingly decriminalized on the state level, and the Senate Judiciary Committee voted to decriminalize up to an ounce of marijuana possession in 1977. That same year, Carter explicitly asked Congress to decriminalize marijuana possession. But in the late 70s and early 80s, the war on drugs roared back to life. High rates of marijuana use among teenagers led parents to support increased penalties for drug use. During the Reagan presidency and throughout the 1980s, media fear-mongering about crack cocaine whipped Americans and legislators into an anti-drug frenzy. First Lady Nancy Reagan created the Just Say No Drug campaign, while her husband signed measures like the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1986. This act created mandatory minimum drug penalties and legalized the disparate sentences for crack and powder cocaine, which, as we discussed in episode one, led to black Americans serving much longer and harsher sentences for nearly identical legal infractions. During the Reagan and Clinton administrations, both the executive branch and Congress consistently passed harsh drug policies that emphasized sentencing and criminal penalties, rather than providing resources to addicts and funding programs that actually reduced rates of drug use. While the government introduced harsh penalties for drug use, widespread fears about a drug epidemic seized the American public. The war on drugs represents a larger trend in the American justice system during the end of the 20th century. Legislators put into place harsher sentences, including mandatory minimum sentences for crimes like drug use that, in most nations, don't result in any prison time. They also expanded the prison system and consistently funded increased policing and prison development instead of rehabilitation programs. Most Americans incorrectly believed that punishments for serious crimes were lenient, that criminals targeted by tough-on-crime policies were dangerous people who needed to be removed from society, and that imprisonment would reduce crime by incapacitating offenders. Research consistently showed that all of these assumptions were false. America had very harsh punishments for serious and less serious crimes. Many of those tough-on-crime policies affected first-time offenders and people who committed nonviolent offenses. Finally, and perhaps most surprisingly, there's no consistent relationship between incarceration rates and crime rates. Trends of socioeconomic opportunity and policing correlate much more closely to the crime rate. Simply put, incarcerating people who commit crimes doesn't actually bring down the crime rate. Still, because the public believed that tough-on-crime policies were necessary and good for the country, legislators didn't pay a political price for harsh initiatives. While it is hard to find data on public opinion about law enforcement at this time, in the 1990s, a survey from the Los Angeles Times found that most Americans believed that the point of imprisonment was to punish offenders, not to rehabilitate them. Studies from decades before found that most Americans believed that the aim of prison was to rehabilitate. So the development of these tough-on-crime policies mirrored most Americans' perceptions of the crime rate and of the purpose of incarceration. When Americans started to believe that the point of prison was to keep people away from society, policies changed to reflect that belief.
In fact, many of the communities most seriously affected by tough-on-crime politics supported punitive legislation. In his insightful book, Locking Up Our Own, James Foreman Jr. shows how Black communities and legislators, suffering from the perception of Black criminality, advocated for the same tough-on-crime politics. These communities were under immense social pressure, and many members believed it was necessary to promote both punitive policies for drug offenders and advance rehabilitative and community-oriented programs to address the perceived prevalence of drugs and crime. However, the timing of this community-motivated legislation lined up perfectly with the expansion of tough-on-crime policy. In the end, lawmakers were easily able to expand and fund tough-on-crime initiatives, but did not have the same success with rehabilitative efforts. The internal pressures of the war on drugs, widespread racial bias, and community activism, together, led the communities most negatively affected by drug abuse and the war on drugs to adopt some of the harshest, most retributive policies for even minor drug offenses. The negative portrayal of black communities during the war on drugs exacerbated these pressures, leading many of the same communities to advance tough penal measures. Black communities were in an incredibly difficult situation. The waves of addiction that gripped many predominantly black cities and communities, first heroin, then cocaine, not only placed communities under strain, but also fed into media hysteria around drug addiction and black criminality. For instance, when D.C. confronted a heroin crisis in the 1970s, a network of black community members and social advocates campaigned for harsher drug sentencing laws, prosecution of local, primarily black drug dealers, and drug addicts themselves. Communities responded to drug abuse by embracing tough-on-crime politics. With the benefit of hindsight, you might ask why. Today, we know that these politics harm minority communities, trapping millions of Americans in a vicious cycle of imprisonment. Back in the 70s, though, the portrait of American crime looked very different than it does today. Drug-related crime in predominantly black communities was at record highs. Media outlets sensationalized so-called black-on-black crime, vilifying drug dealers, drug users, and community members who remain complicit in drug use. Many black activists and community members believed that white Americans wanted black people to remain addicted to drugs, destroying black communities and keeping those communities downtrodden. People also complained that police enforcement against crimes was too lax. As one resident from the Shaw neighborhood of Washington, D.C. wrote to the city council, the drug use in the city was, quote, prejudicial and shameful. He complained that deals, quote, are made in the presence of policemen, and that, quote, there's no congregation of this sort in predominantly white areas of the city. Widespread perceptions existed within D.C.'s black community that police officers tolerated unreasonable levels of criminality in black neighborhoods and did not want to protect black citizens of D.C. In the 70s, John Ray, a young black D.C. city council member, called for D.C. residents to advocate for increased sentence length. He said, Black crimes against blacks get very low sentences. Black crimes against whites get very big sentences, and low-status whites get longer sentences than higher-status whites. These powerful forms of political rhetoric reflected public sentiment. Communities viewed drug abuse and crime as existential threats and sought law enforcement as a solution, perceiving lenient treatment of drug dealers and poor policing as root causes of the heroin epidemic, as well as the later cocaine crisis. 
While reform-minded individuals today might push for the rights of nonviolent drug offenders, communities affected by drug abuse didn't conceive of drug offenders as nonviolent in the 70s and 80s. As Foreman describes it, quote, the link between drugs and violence had been so tightly drawn that many saw the two as interchangeable. This accepted link between drug use and violence within predominantly black communities explains the widespread willingness to adopt tough-on-crime policies. Advocates and citizens viewed increased sentence lengths as a way to remove drug dealers from communities, reducing so-called black-on-black crime and violence, and giving the communities new opportunities to flourish. Similarly, activists called for increased, consistent policing in predominantly black neighborhoods. They undertook this cause in order to end a perceived imbalance between predominantly black, poor neighborhoods and predominantly white, wealthy neighborhoods. Ultimately, communities viewed drug epidemics as a moral and existential crisis and turned to increased sentencing and policing as a way of protecting themselves. These policies began in response to drugs, but how did more recent history affect the development of the prison state? Tune in to part two of this episode to learn about how the Great Recession and recent history encouraged the growth of the prison system.